0: Can you give away any secrets of your theory of scaring people? The psycho shower scene made many women afraid to take a shower in a house where they were alone for years, some to this day. Well, I had a letter from a man who said that uh,
1: my daughter, after she saw the French film Diabolique, would never take a tub anymore because they had a scene with a man coming out of a tub and taking his eyes out, some horror scene. He said, and after seeing that, she'd never take a tub. Now, having seen Psycho, she won't (laughs) take a shower. Mm -hmm. As a result, she's very unpleasant to be around. (laughs) So I replied, I said, dear sir, send her to the dry cleaners.
2: (laughs) Uh, um... Lucky you! That's 36 holes in golf. You tuned in to Alternate Shots Podcast.
3: Barney's Army. Where we talk about golf. Barky's, Sandy's. Poker. Bond. James Bond. Horse racing.
2: I'm all in. Great movies. Alfred Hitchcock. We have no script. And down the stretch they come. We're glad you joined us.
3: Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Whoop. Let's start again. What sort of a childhood did you have? Were
1: you interested in movies way back? Not really. Not interested in them now, actually. But it's a way of making a living. It was about
2: 1916.
1: I was at college, going, taking a course in mechanical engineering back at Cornell University in New York. And this, was, I took a job at the studio to earn, earn money during summer vacation and it just happened that Doug Fairbanks was making a picture in the east and he wanted a modern setting and I'd had about seven years of architecture the man who did all the sets and did that kind of stuff was down in Arizona and they didn't know what to do, and I said, I can draw, get him a set.
0: Ignorance, there's no authority in the world like it.
1: But, but there's, there's, there's got to be something more than that technically. I mean, how did you know that... You they... know
0: technically that the whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. I kid you not. Mr. Hitchcock, why do you always make mystery films?
1: life is a big mystery, isn't it? It always has been. I think people are intrigued by mystery to find out about
2: things they don't know anything about. That's a mystery. Well, Billy, we're getting around to it. We're right in the meat of our uh, kind of fantasy world here in Hollywood. And today's episode is called Two Director." Uh, what is it called? Directors. Action. Cut. Reese, <laughs> line, please. What is it? You say the line. You're the you're the actor now.
3: Too dope stoping out? Some of the big time Hollywood directors.
2: Yeah, four, four right.
3: in, four in particular.
2: Right, and if, before everybody <laughs> nails us, and why don't we include Frank Frank Capra or some other director that you love and so forth? We just picked a few, and we're going to go into some more maybe in another day. But today we picked, uh, you know, uh, John Ford. We picked howard hawks orson wells and alfred hitchcock so billy we we kind of previewed those four at the beginning of this episode and uh we'll get into each one of those because they all have unique but there are some crossovers with each of the two that you you know about isn't that accurate yeah there's several
3: crossovers <clears throat> for instance um john ford used greg toland in uh uh in his movie um the grapes of wrath which was an incredible movie great movie and and uh, and of course Orson Welles used him as a cinef- cinematographer in citizen kane and and the respect that hollywood had for um toland is is marvelous so working with these big directors was as much a treat for them as it was for him
2: there's also was think- also their own personalities because as we're going to talk about this it's not the the venue it's not the actor it's not the script it is the director that's telling the story that's what we've learned from these four gentlemen and everybody else that's around them
3: so important that the director understands the movie inside and out it tells him how he wants to shoot it and how he wants to portray the the, all the action or lack of action in some cases and you know when you were talking about crossovers the one of the most unique ones was uh the fear of policemen that both Howard Hawks and Alfred Hitchcock had probably for different reasons
2: hold that thought we're going to get to that that's a perfect segue so hold on one second let me make this up we're going to go to um a clip that I have that goes back to the opening I'll probably get the pronunciation
1: wrong, but I believe your real name is Sean O'Feen, Is
2: it or fun? Hold one second. Fair one second, Billy. Yep. I have to share that. Okay, here we go. So I'll introduce this when we get it up. <clears throat> See that? Yep, John Wayne. Let it go a little bit here. So we're going to talk a little bit about John Ford. He's a bit of a surly Irishman, but born in Maine. We're going to hear about him.
1: Mr. Ford, I'm, I'll probably get the pronunciation wrong, but I believe your real name is Sean O'Feen, is it, or Fine? How how Irish are you? Are you 100% Irish? Oh, centuries bad. O'Fearna. O'Fearna. Sean O'Fearna. <laughs> when did you come to America? I was born here. <laughs> What sort of a childhood did you have were you interested in movies way back not really not interested in them now actually it's a way of making a living no uh
2: well you know that's john ford in a sentence or two he never used a word if he didn't need to use it right uh, that's the same as if he was talking to one of the actors or, or lighting guys or Greg Toland, it didn't matter who he was talking to. He was a surly direct guy, all business.
3: And he's known for his, like, I don't want to use the word epic as much as vast Westerns. It was always a big scope picture. Always, always a large, a large, um, scene.
2: Well, speaking of large scenes, uh, uh, Orson Welles, who we'll talk about later on, said you could always know it was a John Ford film just by the way that scene was set up, that it was blocked and, and whatnot. And you have some experience here. Well, yeah, well, <clears throat> again,
3: the way John Ford looked at, a, at a, a movie like The Grapes of Wrath or Stagecoach was it, it was a big, a big thing. It was a, a countrywide kind of thing. And he showed those he showed those views. So you always saw a big, you know, you know I, how the West was won is a perfect example of the vastness of of uh, John Ford. It, it was I shot in Cinerama, which was a wraparound kind of thing, but it was tons and tons of stars and tons and tons of uh, scenery, and then you
2: the know Western stories. And in- but grapes of wrath, it felt like we went the twelve hundred miles from wherever they started out. Was it in Oklahoma or Texas where they started? They yep. Had <laughs> I mean, on, on little or little or no rubber on their tires, seemed like five uh, people on that tr- jalopy or whatever you call that thing. He took yeah. us through the he took us through the tumble brush. I am really a coward. I know I am. So that's
1: why I did foolish things. And I was decorated eight or nine times, trying to prove that I was not a coward. But after it's all over, I still knew that I still know that I was a coward. I've always found that the little, quiet little man
3: that nobody pays any attention to usually has more guts. And and uh, likewise with uh, How Green Was My Valley, uh, both those movies are poignant, um, but there's very little happiness in any of them. You know, you don't get much relief in either of those movies from the, from the travails of the, of the people involved.
2: If you wanted happiness, You'd have to go watch *The Quiet Man*, which is, I'd say, a a nod of his cap to his uh, parents' homeland, Ireland. Yep. And he used Maureen uh,
3: O'Hara, who was actually Irish as well, in that movie with, with of course John Wayne, the Duke. Yeah. The uh, incomparable. Some people aren't as big of fans, and some people are ridiculously big fans of John Wayne. But John Wayne was a professional, and John Ford figured out John Wayne early.
2: He put him on the map, according to what I heard. He was his third prop guy or second prop guy, and they were going to come up with this movie, um, Stagecoach. And the writer, the producer said, Well, what are you, who are you going to get? And he says, I'm having a hard time getting people. He says, I'm going to use this young kid out of college. And uh, they said, Well, you know, you want me to send you a screen test? He says, No, we trust you. And he put John Wayne in the picture. But let's see what Lee Marvin, you talked about scenes. And let's expand it to complicated scenes. Let's see first what uh, Lee Marvin has to say about John Ford, and then how he dealt with complicated scenes.
1: Working for John
2: Ford uh, on *The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance* and, and then later *Donovan's Reef*, uh, you know, so just so much has been written about the man, and uh, I think some of some of it
1: seems to paint him as this simple kind of Irishman, but in reality, he was really a very complex
2: uh, person.
0: Wasn't he was life? Um, tough Irish intellect. I don't think there can be anything worse than that. Uh, In other words, he has all the demons in him, the Irish demons, and he's also intelligent.
2: Here's a guy who worked with him. I'm sure he might not have said exactly what he was saying if John Ford was alive, but I mean, look at the face on Lee Marvin look at the well-known
3: face and that guy that guy ran the gamut in acting also from the villain to the hero from the dirty dozen to a movie called the big heat with Glenn Ford where he plays a really low down mobster
2: he had range that uh say John Wayne didn't have he 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 was in uh one of those war movies you know the dirty dozen yep he was was a great actor he tells a story about John Ford saying, okay, we're going to do this picture. I want you to come do it. He said, well, okay, but it's my policy to read a script and um, before I commit to a picture. He said, well, don't you want to spend eight weeks in Hawaii in the summertime? Yeah. He said, "Don't, don't, don't you want your children to get brown like beans? Yeah. Yeah, I'll do the picture. And that was <laughs> That's Donovan enough of the for me. That was Donovan's Reef, and it was John Ford's kind of aloha to all of his buddies. He invited all of his buddies to do this film. It was like a you know spring break in the summer in Hawaii, paid by the producers, and all these guys had a had a fun time. Let's go to the point I said earlier about how John Ford, who I thought was brilliant, but how he set up a complicated scene. This is fabulous.
0: And, uh, when the script is written, etc., if there was ever a difficult scene, he'd always shoot it at the end of the day. <clears throat> so, uh, he'd break for tea about four. And he'd say, all right, now we're gonna do this scene. so, you know, walk through it, put the marks down, <clears throat> and go for the first take. Now, we're all set and all juiced and ready to go, right? And he'd look at his watch and say, all right, that's the wrap, first shot in the morning.
2: <laughs> it's like it's like getting Tiger Woods out in the driving range for his nine o'clock tee off time at eight o'clock and saying no your tee off times at two right these actors wonder... they're athletes too they get all ready for their line yeah. and so forth and 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 you can see the excitement and they know their marks and they in each of these people have different roles to play and they're yeah. looking at going through that scene
3: imagine if you're supposed to sing the national anthem before the super bowl or something like that yeah you know i don't care who you are you're going to be nervous you're going to be worked up how you're going to do this blah 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 i'm all set ah never mind we're not going to do that right now it's like whoa now what
2: this is how we set him up
0: now you leave the set like this you're wired and all night long you're saying i was ready to go i mean why don't have to live with this like this was I?" Then you start to criticize yourself in the scene you say, Oh my God, I would have done that. Oh, that's wrong? Mm. So now you come to work the next morning knowing how you're going to change what you're doing. And you see that the set has all changed. All the marks are up, the camera's gone, everything. You say, All right, now let's uh, run that scene again. Totally different and right. In other words, he'd let you sweat it for a night and he'd sweat it for a night. And you do it in the morning. I mean, that's how, how bright he was about it.
3: So he was basically taking his second chance first.
2: This is a question about, did John Ford direct John Wayne? So that communication between actor and director.
0: Oh no, Ford had talked to Duke all the time. Huh? Oh no, he directed Duke. And I think Duke relied on him very much to direct him. Because I think that Duke felt very, very enamored of, of what, uh, Jack, Coach, Pop, what do they call him, had done for his career. Because he'd say, oh, don't do that, Duke. And Duke would go like that and do what he told him to do. And boy, it was just brilliant. I mean, he I think uh, Ford was very responsible for Wayne's tremendous uh, persona. In-
2: John Wayne was a third prop man before he met John, before he got into pictures, he met him before that and so forth. It turns out that John Ford was the godfather of all of John Wayne's children and all of his grandchildren. I'd never heard of anything like that before.
3: Wow! But it shows you the vision that a director like John Ford had. He was able to spot, I don't know if you call it talent or charisma or, as Lee Marvin said, a persona that he could develop right, right then and there, which was correct. As Lee Marvin has said a couple of times, it was right. He was right.
2: So, Billy, let's move on from John Ford to Howard Hawks, who actually turned out to be best of friends. And Hawks admits that he stole from Ford and Ford stole from Hawks. It was about 1916. I was at college
1: going court taking a course in
2: mechanical. It's also not lost on me how these people got into Filmmaking into the movies. Here, Howard Hawks was studying at Cornell up in Ithaca, New York, he had a summer job at the studio. And it was probably picking things up and moving them from here to there, you know, moving chairs around and all that and getting two bucks an hour while he wasn't in semester. But listen to how he got a break into movies. It was not that different from John Wayne getting a break from John Ford. Right. So that break into stagecoach made John. Right, right place,
3: right engineering
2: time. Engineering back at Cornell University in New York.
1: And this was, I took a job at the studio to earn, earn money during summer vacation. And it just happened that Doug Fairbanks was making a picture. <laughs> in the East, and he wanted a modern setting. And I'd had about seven years of architecture. The man who did all the sets and did that kind of stuff was down in Arizona, and they didn't know what to do. And I said, I can draw, get him a set.
3: Imagine that.
1: So I made the set, and Doug came back, and he looked at it, and he said, this is just what I wanted. Who who the hell did this? And they introduced me to him. he looked at me and he said, You look like you might be a pretty good athlete. I said, I am. What do you do? And I said, Well, I'm a four handicapped at golf. And I was <laughs> junior champion playing tennis. And, oh, hell, he said, Come on out and play with me this next weekend. We became good friends.
3: <clears throat> this is in the infancy of, of Hollywood, too. I mean, you're. You're going to start to go from silence to talkies, as they called them back then, and the opportunities were growing. I I assume at all times, <clears throat> and there wasn't as much of a demand as there is now. Like you know, who knows how many people go to Hollywood to 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 try and hit the big time now versus then. But it, this just shows you he he and John Wayne both kind of backed into huge careers.
2: Yeah. It's almost like he jumped on the horse and now he's designing sets. Yeah. Wait till you hear the next part of the story.
1: And he was going through
2: the a, a courtship
1: stage with Mary Pickford. And he said to Mary, why don't you put Howard in as your real property man? She said, okay and i did a couple things that she liked so she made me her assistant director property man ad and one day the director got drunk and she said i guess we can't work anymore." i said why why don't we make some scenes and she said can you do it and i said sure and we made some scenes and she was very pleased with them and that was my start as a director
3: (laughs) right place right time that's what i mean it's incredible he might not have even known how good at this stuff he was, you know, if not for these, this confluence of uh, events.
2: He might've been, de-
3: might been designing engines.
2: hundred years ago with no social media, he moved through not knowing anything about Hollywood to being in the middle of Hollywood, the two biggest Hollywood people of the time. Right. And,
3: and with uh, Cha- with Chaplin, the three of them, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin were pretty much the uh, Hollywood.
2: So he's not the first person we're going to talk about today that learned by watching movies and uh we'll talk about how orson wells at 26 became a director and an actor never was a director before but listen to how he learned
1: i realized how little i knew about pictures and i want to see a picture every night and sometimes two and sometimes i saw the same one two times or three times and I went to mostly pictures that were directed by good directors. And I think I learned quite a little bit and I've got a good memory. So I've had no trouble from that time on figuring out where the camera ought to go, how you, what you should do, telling a story. Because in my opinion, the director is just a storyteller. And he ought to use the best way photographically and the best way with titles, the best way
2: with action that he can tell a story. Isn't that the essence of being a director right there?
3: There's, <clears throat> He's kind of touching on something that that, that I've been uh, known for a long time. That there's a photographic eye, I don't know if you, what the expression actually means, but someone who knows how to frame a shot, composition, That's extremely important. And you would think, you know, people who can do that think everybody can do it, but everybody can't do it. And you can see that very often. If you look at snapshots, you'll see a guy's face and then equal amount of room above his head. It's like that was not framed correctly. You know, when I went into television, uh, as an aside, I was a cameraman. I kind of knew how to frame everything because I had watched TV so many times. But what I never realized was what they call leading somebody. So if you're interviewing somebody, for instance, you don't shoot them square on. You have them one side or the other, depending on which side the interviewer is on. You leave them a little bit. And and like a great golf course, people don't always understand what they love about what they're watching. But there are intricate details involved in that. There was intricate details in the design of Wingfoot that Tilling has to understood that we can learn about. But we didn't know it when we went out there what we loved about the place. It was just a work of art. And it's the same thing with a movie, but there's a lot of little intricate things that go in there and and talent that is hidden from the from most people in the world because they're just seeing the finished product. And I think even Howard Hawks is pointing out he didn't know how much talent he had. He just knew he knew how to do this. For some reason, he had an eye for composition and he had a knack for telling a story. Not everybody does.
2: Now, John Ford Ford was surly, but he still got to the point of the story the interesting yeah.
3: bits uh, yeah and we'll all, find a lot of that with hitch too
2: <laughs> yeah it's going kind to of toss up between Hitchcock or Orson Welles or Howard Hawks who tells a better story I mean there's and they a, all
3: tell them different ways
2: I think Hitchcock's the best storyteller but I could be argued that first of all Orson Welles didn't make as many movies as any of these guys his famous movie was Citizen Kane which we'll get to but they tell a story and he could tell Story after story after story, as long as he didn't need a a break, and he could just keep going on. And they're all interesting, and in the way yeah. told them. and the people they knew, the people they knew. I didn't know who Howard Hawks knew when he was a college kid at Cornell, but over that summertime, he knew the two most powerful people in Hollywood, and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Mary Pickford. So then he knew everybody. This is yeah. my Guy Howard. This is my guy Howard. Hey, here's my director Howard. Here's my, you know,
3: and on and on yeah. and on. So he got well, an immediate respect.
2: And all he did was use common sense to go to the movies, probably a lot of John Ford movies, and see how things looked and he'd, he'd say, "Well, how did he do that?" Yeah.
3: <clears throat> but again, it, something inside him was touched by all of this and he never saw it coming and, and there it was. All all at once.
2: We're going to go into a more specific story about actors and actresses. We all know that Bogey fell in love with Bacall. Was it at To Have and To Have Not in that movie? Probably. Yeah.
3: And she then, was basically, basically a 19-year-old kid, I think, at the time.
2: Yeah, and, jo- and uh, Howard Hawks was talking to Bacall. And he said, well, you know, sometimes people fall in love through the movie. And you're acting out a persona in the movie. He said, you probably yeah. want to keep doing that that in your real life.
1: I don't like the very feminine girl who's in pink and baby blue and curls and prim and everything. They don't interest me at all. I like an honest forthright girl. So that shows up in the pictures. When Bacall fell in love with Bogart and he with her, and she told me about it. I said, I'll tell you one thing. I wouldn't be surprised if he wasn't in love with a girl in the scenario. And if I were you, and if you're smart, and if you love him, you better keep on acting
2: this way all the time. (laughs) That's the crossover between life and acting in a real scenario.
3: you see it all the time in Hollywood, <clears throat> you know, actor mar- marrying actor. Um, and you also see them breaking up a lot. But Bogie and Bacall made it the whole way. You know, that's rare out there. Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawn, still together after all these years. That's that's rare. You know, some of these Elizabeth Taylor had, what, eight husbands? You know, so.
2: Four or five of them were Richard Burton. <laughs> Same guy. Couldn't <laughs> make up her mind.
3: But, you know, the point is, it was it part of their work. is like with anything, you know, they learn a lot about somebody that they work with for a long time. And, you know, people are people. So they, you know, they get attracted to each other. And then sometimes real life comes along and shows them they're not in a movie and boom, they're gone again. But, you know, not Bogie and Bacall. He, she was with him till the end.
2: The other thing you learn from these great movie directors and you hear these interviews... You know, what's the single most important thing by being a director or a filmmaker other than the story? The single most important thing is to make money.
3: Of course. So budgets become important. And, you know, sometimes these days, like a movie like Mission Impossible, you could, you know, how much money does it cost to make one of those movies or or the James Bond movies? You know. But some of these old movies, the budgets were not that big and, and they were very successful because they were either parlor mysteries and it was all done with cameras and acting and not special effects. And, you know, Hitchcock managed both ways. He, You know, he could keep you entertained on a lot of levels from climbing up Mount Rushmore or hanging from the Statue of Liberty, you know, to dial in for murder where it all takes place basically in an apartment room
2: so you're giving a little glimpse into and we're going we're going to uh, come to a close on this episode the part 1a of great filmmakers great direct great hollywood directors and we've talked about john ford and howard hawks and uh, john ford made over 145 films and howard hawks made 40 so there's 185 films if you haven't seen a hawks or a ford film Start with stagecoach with John Ford or Rapes of wrath, rapes of wrath. And who did, uh, who shot Liberty Valens? So that was, and who
3: shot that's Ford Also, and the man Hawks, who shot Liberty Valens
2: and in Hawks, we got to tell you about having to have and to have not. Yep. And the other- that's
3: Bogey and Bacall. That's, Bo- uh, Lauren Bacall's start in films and Bogey at his best it was, you know, after Casablanca and, you know, Bogey had, uh, You know established himself as a you know great kind of hero tough guy smoking cigarette little you know smart hero very very popular at the time
2: that's the look we're looking at right there well that'll be a wrap for this episode um so thanks a lot billy really appreciate it
3: yeah that was fun i love the i love these movies
1: rather be a filmmaker than anything else that I know. Well, because uh, in a Western you get outside, out in the desert, out in the uh, outdoors, and it's very pleasant to work, and also I enjoy working with John Wayne, and John Wayne has been in all the Westerns that I've made. And we like each other, and it's very easy to work with him. He just says, what do I do? I tell him and he never says one word. He just does it. And Cary Grant is the best comedian. So that I, in making comedies, I've only used Cary Grant and I make it easy for myself. Why are you laughing?
3: I, 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 well, at least we have the laugh to add at the end.
2: <laughs> right, We're, we've gone from 12 handicaps at this to 19 handicaps in just a week. <laughs>
3: That, that's what happened. Somebody changed my grip, and the next thing you know, I can't do the podcast anymore. I felt like I was in the first row of the uh, first pew at church right during the sermon. <laughs> and your brother was poking me. My brother, my
2: brother was making me laugh. Thanks for joining Casper, us today.
3: Billy Harman. We really
2: appreciate your Double feedback. Indemnity. And please, Marky, subscribe to the show. Writer, hit him job, hard. Job. And hit him off.
3: That's 36 holes.